Chapter Eleven of Oliver Twist by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tyke Hines. Treats of Mr. Fang, the police magistrate, and furnishes a slight specimen of his mode of administering justice. The offence had been committed within the district, and indeed in the immediate neighbourhood of a very notorious metropolitan police office. The crowd had only the satisfaction of accompanying Oliver through two or three streets, and down a place called Mutton Hill, when he was led beneath a low archway and up a dirty court into this dispensary of summary justice by the back way. It was a small paved yard into which they turned, and here they encountered a stout man with a bunch of whiskers on his face and a bunch of keys in his hand. "'What's the matter now?' said the man carelessly. "'A young fogel-hunter replied the man who had Oliver in charge. "'Are you the party that's been robbed, sir?' inquired the man with the keys. "'Yes, I am,' replied the old gentleman. "'But I am not sure that this boy actually took the handkerchief. I—I I would rather not press the case.' "'You must go before the magistrate now, sir,' replied the man. "'His worship will be disengaged in half a minute. Now, young gallows—' This was an invitation to Oliver to enter through a door which he unlocked as he spoke, and which led into a stone cell. Here he was searched, and nothing being found upon him locked up. This cell was in size and shape something like an area cellar, only not so light. It was most intolerably dirty, for it was Monday morning, and it had been tenanted by six drunken people who had been locked up elsewhere since Saturday night. But this is little. In our station-houses men and women are every night confined on the most trivial charges—the word is worth noting—in dungeons compared with which those in Newgate, occupied by the most atrocious felons, tried, found guilty, and under sentence of death, are palaces. Let anyone who doubts this compare the two. The old gentleman looked almost as rueful as Oliver when the key grated in the lock. He turned with a sigh to the book which had been the innocent cause of all this disturbance. "'There is something in that boy's face,' said the old gentleman to himself as he walked slowly away, tapping his chin with the cover of the book in a thoughtful manner. "'Something that touches and interests me. Can he be innocent? He looked like—by the by,' exclaimed the old gentleman, halting very abruptly and staring up into the sky. "'Bless my soul! Where have I seen something like that look before?' After musing for some minutes the old gentleman walked with the same meditative face into a back ante-room opening from the yard, and there, retiring into a corner, called up before his mind's eye a vast amphitheatre of faces over which a dusky curtain had hung for many years. "'No,' said the old gentleman, shaking his head. "'It must be imagination.' He wandered over them again. He had called them into view, and it was not easy to replace the shroud that had so long concealed them. There were the faces of friends and foes, and of many that had been almost strangers peering intrusively from the crowd. There were the faces of young and blooming girls that were now old women. There were faces that the grave had changed and closed upon, but which the mind, superior to its power, still dressed in their old freshness and beauty, calling back the lustre of the eyes, the brightness of the smile the beaming of the soul through its mask of clay, and whispering of beauty beyond the tomb, changed but to be heightened, and taken from earth only to be set up as a light, to shed a soft and gentle glow upon the path to heaven. 
but the old gentleman could recall no one countenance of which Oliver's features bore a trace. So he heaved a sigh over the recollections he awakened, and being happily for himself an absent old gentleman, buried them again in the pages of the musty book. He was roused by a touch on the shoulder, and a request from the man with the keys to follow him into the office. He closed his book hastily, and was at once ushered into the imposing presence of the renowned Mr. Fang. The office was a front parlour with a panelled wall. Mr. Fang sat behind a bar at the upper end, and on one side of the door was a sort of wooden pen in which poor little Oliver was already deposited, trembling very much at the awfulness of the scene. Mr. Fang was a lean, long-backed, stiff-necked, middle-sized man, with no great quantity of hair than what he had growing on the back and sides of his head. His face was stern and much flushed. If he were not really in the habit of drinking rather more than was exactly good for him, he might have brought an action against his countenance for libel, and have recovered heavy damages. The old gentleman bowed respectfully, and, advancing to the magistrate's desk, said, suiting the action to the word, "'That is my name and address, sir.' He then withdrew a pace or two, and, with another polite and gentlemanly inclination of the head, waited to be questioned. Now, it so happened that Mr. Fang was at that moment perusing a leading article in a newspaper of the morning, adverting to some recent decision of his, and commending him for the three hundred and fiftieth time to the special and particular notice of the Secretary of State for the Home Department. He was out of temper, and he looked up with an angry scowl. "'Who are you?' said Mr. Fang. The old gentleman pointed with some surprise to his card. "'Officer!' said Mr. Fang, tossing the card contemptuously away with the newspaper. "'Who is this fellow?' "'My name, sir,' said the old gentleman, speaking like a gentleman. "'My name, sir, is Brownlow. Permit me to inquire the name of the magistrate who offers a gratuitous and unprovoked insult to a respectable person, under the protection of the bench.' Saying this, Mr. Brownlow looked around the office, as if in search of some person who would afford him the required information. "'Officer!' said Mr. Fang, throwing the paper on one side. "'What's this fellow charged with?' "'He's not charged at all, Your Worship,' replied the officer. "'He appears against this boy, Your Worship.' His Worship knew this perfectly well, but it was a good annoyance and a safe one. "'Appears against the boy, does he?' said Mr. Fang, surveying Mr. Brownlow contemptuously from head to foot. "'Swear him.' "'Before I am sworn, I must beg to say one word,' said Mr. Brownlow, "'and that is—' that I really never, without actual experience, could have believed—' "'Hold your tongue, sir,' said Mr. Fang peremptorily. "'I will not, sir,' replied the old gentleman. "'Hold your tongue this instant, or I'll have you turned out of the office,' said Mr. Fang. "'You are an insolent, impertinent fellow. How dare you bully a magistrate!' "'What?' exclaimed the old gentleman, reddening. "'Swear this person,' said Fang to the clerk. "'I'll not hear another word. Swear him.' Mr. Brownlow's indignation was greatly roused, but reflecting, perhaps, that he might only injure the boy by giving vent to it, he suppressed his feelings and submitted to be sworn at once. "'Now,' said Fang, "'what's the charge against this boy? What have you got to say, sir?' "'I was standing at a bookstall,' Mr. Brownlow began. "'Hold your tongue, sir,' said Mr. Fang. "'Policeman! Where's the policeman? Here, swear this policeman. Now, policeman, what is this?' The policeman, with becoming humility, related how he had taken the charge, how he had searched Oliver, and found nothing on his person, and how that was all he knew about it. "'Are there any witnesses?' inquired Mr. Fang. "'None, Your Worship,' 
replied the policeman. Mr. Fang sat silent for some minutes, and then, turning round to the prosecutor, said in a towering passion, "'Do you mean to state what your complaint against this boy is, man, or do you not? You have been sworn. Now, if you stand there refusing to give evidence, I'll punish you for disrespect to the bench. I will by—' "'By what or by whom nobody knows, for the clerk and jailer coughed very loud just at the right moment, and the former dropped a heavy book upon the floor, thus preventing the word from being heard, accidentally, of course.' With many interruptions and repeated insults, Mr. Brownlow contrived to state his case, observing that in the surprise of the moment he had run after the boy because he had seen him running away and expressing his hope that if the magistrate should believe him, although not actually the thief, to be connected with the thieves, he would deal as leniently with him as justice would allow. "'He has been hurt already,' said the old gentleman in conclusion. "'And I fear,' he added with great energy, looking towards the bar, "'I really fear that he is ill.' "'Oh, yes, I dare say,' said Mr. Fang, with a sneer. "'Come, none of your tricks here, you young vagabond. They won't do. What's your name?' Oliver tried to reply, but his tongue failed him. He was deadly pale, and the whole place seemed turning round and round. "'What's your name, you hardened scoundrel?' demanded Mr. Fang. "'Officer, what's his name?' This was addressed to a bluff old fellow in a striped waistcoat, who was standing by the bar. He bent over Oliver and repeated the inquiry, but finding him really incapable of understanding the question, and knowing that his not replying would only infuriate the magistrate the more and add to the severity of his sentence, he hazarded a guess. "'He says his name's Tom White, your worship,' said the kind-hearted thief-taker. "'No, he won't speak out, won't he?' said Fang. "'Very well, very well. Where does he live?' "'Where he can, your worship,' replied the officer, again pretending to receive Oliver's answer. "'Has he any parents?' inquired Mr. Fang. "'He says they died in his infancy, your worship,' replied the officer, hazarding the usual reply. At this point of the inquiry Oliver raised his head, and looking round with imploring eyes murmured a feeble prayer for a draught of water. "'Stuff and nonsense!' said Mr. Fang. "'Don't try to make a fool of me!' "'I think he really is ill, your worship,' remonstrated the officer. "'I know better,' said Mr. Fang. Well, "'Take care of him, officer,' said the old gentleman, raising his hands instinctively. "'He'll fall down!' "'Stand away, officer,' cried Fang. "'Let him if he likes.' Oliver availed himself of the kind permission and fell to the floor in a fainting fit. The men in the office looked at each other, but no one dared to stir. "'I knew he was shamming,' said Fang, as if this were incontestable proof of the fact. "'Let him lie there. He'll soon be tired of that.' "'How do you propose to deal with the case, sir?' inquired the clerk in a low voice. "'Summarily,' replied Mr. Fang. "'He stands committed for three months. Hard labour, of course. Clear the office.' The door was opened for this purpose, and a couple of men were preparing to carry the insensible boy to his cell, when an elderly man of decent but poor appearance, clad in an old suit of black, rushed hastily into the office and advanced towards the bench. "'Stop! Stop! Don't take him away! For heaven's sake, stop a moment!' cried the newcomer, breathless with haste. Although the presiding genii in such an office as this exercise a summary and arbitrary power over the liberties, the good name, the character, almost the lives of Her Majesty's subjects, especially of the poorer class, and although within such walls enough fantastic tricks are daily played to make the angels blind with weeping, they are closed to the public, save through the medium of the daily press, nor where virtually then. Mr. Fang was consequently not a little indignant to see an unbidden guest enter in such irreverent disorder. 
"'What is this? Who is this? Turn this man out! Clear the office!' cried Mr. Fang. "'I will speak!' cried the man. "'I will not be turned out. I saw it all. I keep the bookstall. I demand to be sworn. I will not be put down. Mr. Fang, you must hear me. You must not refuse, sir.' The man was right. His manner was determined, and the matter was growing rather too serious to be hushed up. "'Swear the man!' growled Mr. Fang, with a very ill grace. "'Now, man, what have you got to say?' "'This,' said the man, "'I saw three boys, two others and the prisoner here, loitering on the opposite side of the way when this gentleman was reading. The robbery was committed by another boy. I saw it done. I saw that this boy was perfectly amazed and stupefied by it.' Having by this time recovered a little breath, the worthy bookstall-keeper proceeded to relate, in a more coherent manner, the exact circumstances of the robbery. "'Why didn't you come here before?' said Fang, after a pause. "'I hadn't a soul to mind the shop,' replied the man. "'Everybody who could have helped me had joined in the pursuit. I could get nobody till five minutes ago, and I've run here all the way.' "'The prosecutor was reading, was he?' inquired Fang, after another pause. "'Yes,' replied the man. "'The very book he has in his hand.' "'No, that book, eh?' said Fang. "'Is it paid for?' "'No, it is not,' replied the man, with a smile. Oh, "'Dear me, I forgot all about it,' exclaimed the absent old gentleman innocently. "'A nice person to prefer a charge against a poor boy,' said Fang, with a comical effort to look humane. "'I consider, sir, that you have obtained possession of that book under very suspicious and disreputable circumstances, and you may think yourself very fortunate that the owner of the property declines to prosecute.' Let this be a lesson to you, my man, or the law will overtake you yet. The boy is discharged. Clear the office. Damn me! cried the old gentleman, bursting out with the rage he had kept down so long. Oh, damn me, I'll— Clear the office, said the magistrate. Officers, do you hear? Clear the office. The mandate was obeyed, and the indignant Mr. Brownlow was conveyed out with the book in one hand and the bamboo cane in the other, in a perfect frenzy of rage and defiance. He reached the yard, and his passion vanished in a moment. Little Oliver Twist lay on his back on the pavement, with his shirt unbuttoned and his temples bathed with water, his face a deadly white, and a cold tremble convulsing his whole frame. "'Poor boy! Poor boy!' said Mr. Brownlow, bending over him. "'Call a coach, somebody, pray, directly!' A coach was obtained, and Oliver, having been carefully laid on the seat, the old gentleman got in and sat himself on the other. "'May I accompany you?' said the bookstall-keeper, looking in. "'Bless me, yes, my dear sir,' said Mr. Brownlow quickly. "'I forgot you. Dear, dear, I have this unhappy book still. Jump in. Poor fellow, there's no time to lose.' The bookstall-keeper got into the coach, and away they drove. End of chapter 11